Hi, welcome to Little Pieces Club Ministries podcast. My name is Chris Polad. I'm known as Mr. Chris to the kids at Little Pieces Club Small Groups. I am a Bible nerd, a child of divorce, an author, and I created Little Pieces Club Ministries around the idea that when our hearts break, God can still make works of art from the broken pieces. I run small groups for children and teens and consult with and support parents. I also give lectures and seminars on request. The content centers around the science of adversity, abuse and neglect, or ACE science, and how biblical design patterns harmonize with it. We are non-doctrinal and base our teachings on uh, biblical scholarship. And along the way of this path, I discovered that Jesus' story, wrapped in the design patterns of the Good Shepherd and Tree of Life, help us process, grieve, forgive, and reintegrate our souls after trauma and relational toxicity. This helps us grow strong in solitude and community, and leading us and helps us love God, self, and others, which happen to be the most important blessings we can experience and give. The podcast is geared to help parents understand their children's point of view and to be a good shepherd and tree of life through the hard times. You can connect with us at www.littlepiecesclub.com. You can send us an email at littlepiecesministries at gmail.com and then follow us on socials at um, LPC Ministries for Instagram, at Club Pieces on Twitter, and at Little Pieces Club on TikTok. We also have a YouTube video uh, channel uh, to look at all of our small groups and the videos that accompany the podcasts. We also have a Facebook site as well. So now let's get into the uh, this week's episode. So this week we are talking about attachment. We are overall in episode 46 and this is season two, episode six, where we are focusing on either FAQs or things that parents need to know as they navigate pre, during, and post-divorce situations. So what we're doing is we are talking about attachment theory and Little Pieces Club Ministries is about empowering parents with wisdom and God's love to overcome adversity in the world. This means leaning into the idea of how what we experienced in childhood impacts how we bond with others as adults. This means our kids and partners. So you may be caught up in a cycle that you did not start, but make no mistake, you can stop the cycle. Attachment is one on-ramp into this world that we're talking about. So for divorcing parents trying to make sense of things, I hope you will grant yourself permission to see how your childhood or that of your spouse's may be playing a role in present events. This is so you can intervene for your children and yourselves. You may need to grieve what should have been and invite the process of shock, anger, sadness, questioning, acceptance, and growth for why God allowed such a thing in your life and that of your children. But you may direct your grief at yourself as well, and finally your spouse. Uh, And in that um, setting, you may have anger or something like that that you're working through. It's all normal, but remember the, the grieving process Um, ends with us growing stronger and finding forgiveness. 
but each path will eventually lead you to that forgiveness and then will allow you to thrive and bless your community or family. And so the new healing habits and wisdom uh, begin to set in so you can prevent problems in the future. And so this is sort of a complicated topic where we are learning that our childhood might have impacted current events, but also layering upon that is realizing that what your children are experiencing has a long-term impact as well. So what is attachment theory? And the most accessible place that I have found, uh, there, there may be better ones, but this is very accessible, is a website called attachmentproject.com. They summarize a good amount of information about attachment, but also have a quiz that helps you see your attachment patterns. And this also gets broken down into male and female. So how well you attach to female figures and how well you attach to male figures. And the idea is that our attachment or our ability to bond securely with other people forms in our first um, in our first two years of life, usually between ages six months and about 18 months. And if you can imagine an infant who is being cared for by individuals, are they responsive to the needs of the child or is there a, a match between the temperament of the child and the parents and that then helps lay down this ability to securely attach now the other thing to remember with all of this is attachment is flexible so if someone learned a bad attachment pattern in their infancy they can learn a new attachment pattern in their uh, later years. Now, some patterns are a little bit harder to break out of than others, depending upon what happened. But this is the basic idea. And so we're going to see that there are four basic attachment styles in this lens of looking at things. And the first is secure. And then the next two are anxious avoidant and anxious ambivalent and then the last is fearful avoidant so we'll see that in the diagram in the video uh, in this next slide so as you can see we just talked about the four different attachment types but what is going on also in the background is this idea of value and shame and so when we think about this we have this um, sense when a child is not attended to or perhaps they experience some type of neglect or abuse is they're building this idea of their importance in the world. And so that's what's underlying the, the ideas of attachment is, am I important enough to attach to other people? And these are survival strategies, if you will. Our body, our brain is very, very good at adapting to many different types of situations. And we were built this way. 
And uh, many of us, including me, say that God was very smart in doing this. So these strategies are considered to be helpful, but not necessarily optimal. And the other thing that we're going to be going over today is what types of parenting favor these types of attachments. So let's get started with each one. And again, this comes from attachmentproject.com. So many thanks to their wonderful website, and I encourage you guys to visit it. So for secure attachment, people who have developed this type of attachment are self-contented, social, warm, and easy to connect to. They are aware of and able to express their feelings, and they also tend to build deep, meaningful, and long-lasting relationships. The child that uh, was parented first and foremost feels safe. So as a parent, you want your child to feel protected. You want your child to feel safe. For the infant and toddler, it means closeness to the mother as she is the source of uh, food, warmth, and protection. And danger means separation from her beyond the comfort zone. The attuned mothers fiercely protect, but not overwhelm or uh, intrude on or ignore children. She gives her child space and freedom to explore the world, but stays close enough so that the child has a sense of safety. When this infant strays too far and becomes frightened, they know that they can run to her and envelop her in a warm, protective embrace, and they are secured against the world. And this conveys the message that you are safe and you are loved and you are lovable. The child feels seen and known. Attuned parents can read their baby's cues accurately and respond to their needs accurately. Attuned responses give infants information about the effects of their behavior. Children learn that when they signal a need, they can expect a prompt, predictable, and accurate response. For The, re- the result is the baby is feeling control over their lives. When I signal that I'm hungry and I get fed, if I signal that I'm tired, my caregiver rocks me to sleep. When I signal that I'm upset, my caregiver soothes my distress. Third, the child feels comfort, soothing, and reassurance. The attuned parent's arms are open and inviting, and when the child is distressed, the caregiver reassures and soothes the child back to a calm emotional state. Helping the child manage their distress and frustration will help them develop an internal model of being soothed and comforted. So over time, the child will develop the ability to manage his or her own distress and self-soothing. Fourth in all of this, a child feels valued. Feeling valued begins in infancy and is the foundation of healthy self-esteem. And parents who raise children with healthy self-esteem repeatedly express their joy about who the child is rather than what the child does. They focus on being rather than doing. Such parents exhibit expressed delight to the child about almost everything the child does. They focus not on the chores, but on the joys of parenting. Fifth, the child feels supported to explore. And lastly, children need this exploration to um, be joyful and feel safe. So the parents who champion this have a deep faith in their child and always provide him or her with a safety net. Deeply involved in their child's life, a parent gives the child space and thrusts him or her towards autonomy and independence. 
This sense of security allows the child to explore, discover, succeed, and fail. And through such exploration, the child develops good, autonomous, strong, and unique sense of self. So this focuses on the mother, but remember that um, attachment is to both male and female. So I believe they actually understate the role of the father in this case, because kids need a sense that both parents are safe and predictable, and that's what's going on in a fully secure attachment. And you could see when we talked about value just a minute ago, that that is what directly leads to the sense of shame. And the the other thing is um, that the children who are very secure, which we'll talk about later, they may also not be quite wise. So if they make the assumption that every individual is um, is someone that they can securely attach to, that that may not ultimately be the wise thing. So we'll talk a little bit later about building from a baseline of a secure attachment, but also having a healthy skepticism for other people. So I think there is kind of a spectrum here that we need to keep in mind about that. So now we're going to take a look at the anxious attachment types. So for anxious avoidance, uh, these people as adults uh, appear confident and self-sufficient, but they do not tolerate emotional or physical intimacy and might not be able to build healthy relationships. What's more, in the workplace, they are often seen as independent lone wolves, and it is, however, possible for these individuals to change and develop a secure attachment style. The type of parenting that favors this are parents who are strict and emotionally distant and do not tolerate the expression of feelings, and they expect their child to be independent and tough and might raise children with this actual avoidant attachment style. So you can see that there are some particular parenting traits that might help push or nudge children in this direction. So for the ancient, uh, sorry, anxious ambivalent style, we see in adults a pattern of low self-esteem, a strong feel of re- fear of rejection or abandonment, and clinginess in relationships are very common. Although it does require some effort, again, these individuals can develop a secure attachment style. So the type of parenting that favors this type of attachment are uh, often associated with an inconsistent parenting pattern. Sometimes the parents will be supportive and responsive to the children's needs, and at other times they will be misattuned to the children. So this inconsistency might make it difficult for the child to understand what the parent's behavior means and what kind of response to expect in the future. The child might end up confused about his or her relationship with the caregivers whose behavior sends mixed signals. So another factor that is linked to the development of the anxious, ambivalent style in children is the so-called emotional hunger of the caregivers. In that case, the caregivers would seek emotional or physical closeness with the children in order to satisfy their own needs rather than their children's. Such parents might appear intrusive or overprotective. They might use the child to satiate their own hunger for love or to present their own selves in a certain light, for example, as the perfect parent. 
It should be noted that raising a child in such a manner might also be an automatic and unrealized pattern in adults who were raised in the same way. Caregivers whose child develops an ambivalent attachment style are likely to have anxious anxious attachment styles themselves. And this is not about genetics, but about the continuity of behavioral patterns throughout generations. Okay, so again, we see in this description the fact that parents may not be doing this on purpose. They may simply be parenting the way that they parented. And so it also brings up the point that we have to be self-aware of our parenting strategies and realize that we can change them over time if some of these traits seem to indicate that we are um, parenting in these fashions for our children. And again, remember, this is this is wisdom that you can always put in place and help nudge the attachment patterns uh, as the kids continue to grow. So now we see fearful and avoidant. And in adulthood, people with this attachment style are extremely inconsistent in their behavior and have a hard time trusting others. Such individuals could also suffer from other mental health issues such as substance abuse, depression, borderline personality disorder, and this attachment style can be changed with, uh, with help, but it is a little bit more challenging than, say, the other styles that we've gone through. So the type of parenting that favors these types of attachments tend to be very disorganized and is believed to be a consequence of childhood trauma or abuse. The perceived fear is the central aspect of its development. The, su- the survival of the infant or child depends on the caregivers, and the child knows subconsciously, so he or, see- he or she seeks safety in the caregivers, and the problem arises when the source of the safety becomes the source of fear. If the caregivers show highly contrasting behavior, which is inconsistent and unpredictable, the child can start fearing for his or her own safety. And when the children don't know what to expect, um, they will have this fear. And another reason for fear is having or witnessing a traumatizing experience that involves the attachment figure. For instance, the caregiver abuses the child verbally, physically, or sexually, and or the child witnesses the caregiver abuse someone else. Either way, the child no longer trusts the caregiver And the child realizes they cannot rely on that caregiver to meet their physical or emotional needs. The caregiver who should be acting as a source of safety are not only unreliable, but they are also causing fear. Children with a disorganized attachment style are not able to truly adapt to the caregiver's behavior as they never know what comes next. Such children lack coherence in their own behavior towards the caregivers. They might might seek closeness but at the same time reject the caregiver's proximity and distance themselves due to fear. Now, the other thing that I'm going to point out in the work that I've done in reading with with dealing with PTSD and psychotherapy is that children will, in this situation, find a way to blame themselves as a uh, coping mechanism. So if they can blame themselves for something that the adult did, that they can still have some form of security in that adult. So unfortunately, though, this allows that deep, deep shame to set in 
in the fact that they must have done something wrong. Therefore, there is something wrong with them as to what happened with this abuse or neglect. So that is why this fearful and avoidant pattern is so important to identify and then help fix. So the next topic about attachment theory is realizing that this can set in both in male and female, uh, with male or female caregivers. And so how you see yourself by gender and how you see the opposite gender um, is very much wound up in this idea of attachment theory. So why is this important? Well, when a child is going to grow into a a family situation where for the bulk of individuals will be a male-female bond, this can uh, disrupt things. So if a male child receives a ton of negative information about males in general, and that could be from a male attachment pattern uh, or an abusive or neglectful adult, they will internalize several things about males and therefore have a very difficult way of being comfortable with who they are as their gender. Same thing from a female perspective. If they are not taught or shown good female role models, uh, and that is females who embrace their femininity but also have power and influence, then they too will begin to mistrust their gender identity. And so also this is complicated with the um, idea of parental alienation syndrome. And that's something that's constantly running in the background of these podcasts is that if one parent who is say the disgruntled parent in the divorce is constantly leaking or venting about the opposite parent, then again, for survival, the child will align their interest with the parent that is doing the venting and whatever gender is being vented against, then that attachment pattern can and will change. So that fast forward into adulthood, let's say a girl was exposed to a mom who is venting about the father they will have a a distrustful attachment pattern perhaps to the male figure that they are either dating or ultimately decide to marry. So the gender piece here has to be very clearly teased out in the situation of uh, the parental um, and the family as it's going through a divorce situation. And you have to pay very, very close attention to these things and see how well you can plan for them And again, that's why Little Pieces Club Ministries does what it does. So, but what is an optimal attachment? And so if we go back to Proverbs, which is kind of a foundational wisdom book that we use in Little Pieces Club, they decide what is ultimately, or they they present reality as either wise or foolish. So then we can layer on to this concept. So as we have said, Attachment patterns are given to us from our parents. So this process is in some way random, but also ordained or allowed by God. So either way, science shows us that the attachment is flexible, which means it can be intentionally worked on once we get beyond our childhood, which may have all sorts of intricate dynamics that we've 
just scratched the surface of talking about today. And so these are beyond our control necessarily as children. But if you remember in the Little Pieces Club approach, we have both the private and the public Christian journeys, and it honors the second phase of attachment formation. And that is that we have the power to choose and grow deeper roots with or without God, of course, uh, but within our uh, frame of reference with God. And these roots help us flourish in relationships or community, whatever shape that takes. So we have hope. So like I said, Proverbs gives us the language of wise and foolish attachment. So then what is wise attachment? So given the observation that the mate, uh, that we are trying to find a mate in our you know, early to mid-20s, one of the most important choices is figuring out the attachment pattern of our mate. And so this, um, our, our choosing should have a, a, a way to find people who are secure enough to safely attach to us. So let me oversimplify things. Let's say a child is very well protected and they have a secure attachment as they venture out into the world, but no one has taught them to watch out for people who might have uh, a non-optimal attachment pattern. And then they connect to or form a relationship with someone with one of the other patterns. Well, even though they've had the secure attachment pattern, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've been at all wise about how they've connected with people. So this idea of choosing someone, if it's foremost in the thinking or at least on the front burner for many parents, and we can see that we are guiding them into this idea of choosing, we can help them uh, kind of figure out the end in mind with respect to their attachment patterns. And remember, biblically, we are looking for an Ezer Konegdo, and that is someone who challenges us to grow and that we challenge them to grow and that we become better together than we can become on our own. So with our attachment pattern in mind, looking for that type of individual who is safe, but yet challenging. And so the other thing is that we can expand our thinking beyond our own individual thought process. And many cultures rely on the, um, the opinions of friends and family as we are making a choice for a long-term uh, mate. And so uh, we get to be beyond our own intuition. And so this must then also be paired with the courage to act on our final decision. And this is what Judith Wallerstein pointed out that we discussed in Divorce 101 series. And that is this, this, choose, this choosing of a mate in our early 20s uh, for who we're going to stay in a long-term relationship with. Uh, and I'm sorry, it could be mid-20s or even late 20s, early 30s, um, is a super important skill that we need in life. And it is bound up in our attachment plus our wise or foolish use of looking at the attachment of others. So what then can we do? We've talked about the fact that, uh, that attachment is very flexible. So then how do we go about fixing our attachment if there's a problem? So 
Therapy is one good way to do it, but there are self workbooks and the attachmentproject.com that I mentioned earlier, and a lot of the uh, information so far has come, has a lot of workbooks for the different attachments. And so fair warning, when you, when you visit their site, they have those, but I think uh, they're uh, very, very well done and should be able to help you. And so, but also with the Little Pieces Club approach, uh, we help people see the attachment and adversity themes in the Bible that seem specially suited for this type of self and community work. So in essence, we are trying to present the Bible's portrait of God and humans as the best self-help guide to creating secure attachments and relationships. And indeed, there's another author that we're going to talk about just uh, in a second, and that is Kurt Thompson has now a few books out, uh, the first of which that I read is called The Anatomy of the Soul. And so we here at LPC believe in highlighting the amazing work of others and connecting you with their work. And Kurt Thompson and his podcasts and uh, the uh, being known groups that he has set up are a remarkable um, work that uh, we... um, we really much value. And so what, among other things, what he really calls to the forefront is this idea that our attachment pattern that we learn as children is, is how we attach to God. And so uh, he, he tries to use that in his therapy sessions with his clients. So the cornerstone of his work is helping people feel known and felt for the first time. And remember, in the anxious and then fearful attachments, the ability to predict and feel important to the caregiver is what's central uh, uh, to those patterns. And remember, we talked about the idea of value and shame is operating at a deep level here as well. So what this brings up for many people who then attach to God in this either anxious or fearful way, is that we have this idea of this angry, vengeful God running in the background. But this is contrasted also with this idea of a good shepherd. So what aspect of God's character can we focus on? And so atheists love to take advantage when they, take, when they talk about God of this misunderstanding of this vengeful God in the Old Testament. And so they then contrast it with this gentle shepherd in Jesus, and they use this inconsistency as a reason to not believe in the God of the Bible. And so the problem with this thinking, though, as Tim Mackey of the Bible Project often says, is that when you get to know the Bible, it just simply is not true. And so we're going to spend a a little bit of time talking about this apparent mismatch in God's character. So for this idea of wrath is is actually just wrong. And listed on the screen is Bible Project's video on uh, what's called uh, the slow to anger video, where they address this head on. So this vengeful God is actually a God who is patient but must also balance justice. So the picture really is of a God who holds back the floodwaters as long as possible. And of course, that imagery goes back to the time of Noah. And so this is happening to give 
humans a chance to repent or turn from their path that they are on back to a path of loyalty with God. And again, we see shadowing of this from Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve made a bad choice, and then God called out to them, giving them an opportunity to turn back and be loyal to God and basically repent of what they did. But because they didn't, God had to send them out of the garden. And that is exactly the idea that we're trying to to say here is that God's wrath is not vengeful, hot, fiery anger that we think of as humans and who might have experienced that in our uh, upbringing with a very angry father or some other figure. So, um, when God ultimately must allow the justice, um, uh, if he's if he's seeing this violence against the image bearers, if it reaches a point of no return, then the chaos floodwaters must wash the land clean of the evil that has set in. And that is also in the background of a lot of the Israelites' campaigns against the people of the land, is that they had become so far adrift of God's plan for them that he used the Israelites to take care of them. So if this sets in, then we also see God lament often. So we see this um, this very patient, slow to anger father figure, but who eventually must take responsibility for the justice, but then he laments. And we see this path and the feelings associated with it in Jesus as he reaches cavalry. And we see his anger come out in the temple. We see sadness when he is tearful, when he looks back over Jerusalem. We see the bargaining in Gethsemane where he asks for God to take the cup from him. But we see finally his loyalty in the completed work. And it not only redeems us personally, which a lot of church teaching focuses on, but Paradoxically, what God is also doing is divorcing his first child, his firstborn son of Israel. Because as people turn from just God, the good shepherd, and then focus on Jesus as the good shepherd, people are being left behind. And God is extraordinarily sad that that is happening. And so this aspect of the story convinces us of the father's true character which is a great model for us to both follow and attach ourselves to. And again, in the video, um, the link is there, but you can look up Slow to Anger on BibleProject.com to see an explainer video uh, go into this in more depth. So this idea of God's wrath is just simply wrong. So instead, as we approach God, we can see him as a worried father, but who eventually has to discipline his children, but also this idea of good, the good shepherd. So we can with confidence know that he's a concerned father who also seeks to rescue us, and that is the leaving of the 99, who these 99 will celebrate the fact that the father is going to rescue a lost, a lost sheep. And then again, we'll dive more deeply into this in the next episode. But what are we being rescued from? And that is the troublesome attachment patterns have one common thread, and that is this idea of shame or lack of value. And so when we get the sense that we are not valued, or worse, we are the problem, that causes so much fear and um, 
avoidance of relationship, that that is what one thing that Jesus is trying to bring us back towards. So again, running in the background of Little Pieces Club is this idea of our journey in solitude. So that's our private Christian journey and our journey in community or our public Christian journey. And at the center of this is grieving and forgiving the things that happened to us in our childhood, which help uh, us overcome this shame or lack of value that we might have experienced or most of us experience in some way, shape, or form. And we overcome this with wisdom and love that helps us grieve and ultimately forgive. So we grieve the imperfections of our childhood, and that is the shame and the lack of wisdom. And we realize that we can choose to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd who is looking for us, like in the garden, who will then lead us from the front, and that is not hitting us or whipping us from the back, but lead us from the from the front so that we can choose to follow. And we're being led back to the path of the loving Father, um, and which will help us learn how to love God, neighbor, and self. So again, that's what's happening in this whole um, in this whole journey. And another way to look at it is that our journey, our life journey, the metaphor that's very strongly listed in the Bible is that we are starting as a lost sheep, but then called by the good shepherd. And we choose to follow that good shepherd, becoming good shepherds ourselves, and then becoming trees of life that bring healing to the nations and other people. So this metaphor imagery is just tremendously rich and deep. And um, we just hope that you can connect with that through the various teachings that we do. So the vision of optimal attachment is what we've presented so far as the greatest blessings slide. So at the center of it is the fact that our identity is that dirt creature who is breathed to life by the ultimate source of love so that we can love God, love others as ourselves. And that includes the creative created world, taking care of it so it doesn't turn on us. And we do that again with patient and kind love, hopeful waiting. Sometimes we must grieve. We must find forgiveness. We win-win submit to God's will, ours and others. And we seek to make right relationships happen with other people. We are attuned to ideas of justice and wisdom. And that means that we are wise in who we pick to be our intimate partners. So we take perhaps a secure attachment or even some anxious attachments, but we learn and grow into this vision of optimal attachment and service to the world. So uh, we next move into what can we do again, a practical suggestion. So for any parents who are listening to this, I do always encourage anyone to pick up a journal. And so, uh, uh, as I've mentioned earlier, go to attachmentproject.com and take the attachment test. It's free, but remember, fair warning, they may try to sell you workbooks. And if they did, they're, they're excellent, so don't worry about it. But a couple of questions that you can ponder to help 
both understand your children more deeply, but understand um, ways that you can grow yourself is how did or does the attachment pattern that you found in yourself impact your marriage? And then what attachment patterns will your children be exposed to based on the information that you've gotten here and also perhaps read about in terms of your parenting strategies for the kids? So how do you intentionally optimize attachment patterns for your children moving forward? And the hint that I'm giving you today is attachment is caught, not taught. So if we think we're going to talk and left brain our kids primarily into an attachment pattern, you're just wrong. So you need to be able to live out the attachment pattern well so that you can influence your children. And it's okay to apologize to your kids for your own humanity and the fact that you might not have learned optimal parenting strategies and attachment patterns growing up. So next, how will you teach your children to assess the attachment patterns of those they are in relationship with? And then to what degree do attachment issues impact a child's sense of self and gender? So again, if your children are going through some type of gender dysphoria, take a step back and look at the genders and the messaging that they have received growing up in both the family of origin, but also what's close by to them. So that kind of brings to an end the, um, the, uh, the information part of today. And so we're going to focus again, we're going to come out of this in our Lectio Divina process. So this week's passage for Lectio Divina is John 21, verse 15, and I uh, grabbed it from the NLT today. And I don't always do this, but I think talking through the context of this statement is extraordinarily important uh, for this lesson in particular. And so, uh, again, we use Lectio as a way that we can attach to Scripture. And this is described by Ruth Haley Barton as a dance with God. So, if you remember, um, Peter denied he knew Jesus. And if we think back uh, this with this story a little, little bit further, Jesus even predicted this when um, Peter was in a moment of overconfidence. There's no way I could ever deny that I know you, Lord, was a really good and expedient thing to say in the moment. But then when he was forced to confront other people or other people confronted him, he denied that he knew Jesus in that public setting. So um, this is what's happening. So one of Jesus's closest disciples failed Jesus on his night of his betrayal. And so then Peter wept bitterly in the realization of how terrified he'd been and did not have confidence in his faith when he denied Jesus's um, uh, relationship to him. So after Jesus's resurrection, he meets up with Peter um, and calls him to the shore and then has a meal with him and then gives him the opportunity to say that he loves Jesus three times. 
And then the other subtle thing that's happening in this passage is Jesus is then asking him to feed his sheep. So this ultimate failure that Peter had, Jesus is asking him to become a good shepherd of the sheep. So if we then think about this idea of shame, Peter knew very well that he should feel shame for what he did. But what's super important is to see that Jesus's response did take into account where Jesus, where Peter was, but gave him an opportunity point by point to um, profess his love for Jesus three times, making up for this failure that Peter had, but also putting him in charge of the flock. So bound up in this conquering of fear with Jesus, this and conquering of shame with Jesus, is at the core of our journey, as we said, going from lost sheep to good shepherds ourselves, and then becoming trees of life. So thank you for hanging in with that bit of context. But now we're going to um, engage with this Lectio verse. So I'll read it the first time through and just stay aware and alert to a word or phrase that really calls your attention. So after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. So we're going to focus on then feed my lambs because it is this pivot point from being a lost sheep to becoming a good shepherd. So we're going to reflect on that. So in our own selves, how does this impact us? Does it cause a sense of fear like we're not ready? Does it cause a sense of overcoming shame that Jesus would uh, would um, look at us the same way? Or does it help us connect with a feeling of responsibility and right relationship to our children and other people we are in relationship with? So I'm going to ask again, or I'm going to read it again. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. So when we respond to this, are we responding to a gift? Um, How are we going to respond? And for me personally, I'm going to continue to take good, deep responsibility, and see this as my walk with Jesus in the garden of helping find lost sheep and um, helping them hear Jesus's voice so that they can become good shepherds themselves. So after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. So in the rest phase of Lectio, again, and we can full on look at the sheep imagery. Jesus has led us to a green pasture, allowed us to uh, feed on his word, and now we can rest and lay down in that green grass and perhaps put our head on the lap of the good shepherd. So after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. So with that, we will go into today's closing prayer. 
So dear Heavenly Father, despite our chaos, Lord, we know you are in control. We can see the wisdom in the metaphor of lost sheep becoming good shepherds and and trees of life. So, but while the lost sheep are alone at night, under a rock, not sure if anyone will come, after our childhoods, especially those of us who have had insecure attachments, we long for certainty and a sense of being known. Abba, we need this sense as a foundation to teach our children. Hurry, Lord, and instill in us this sense of love and protection and confidence that you guide our every step, that you lead us back to the waiting 99 so that we can become a wise, good shepherd who can lead other lost sheep to your voice and love so that we and they can attach to you and bring your greatest blessings to this earth. Although difficult for many, Abba, we choose to open our hearts to all of this. We cannot fathom how we have value, but know miraculously that you somehow find us worthy of your love and want to work alongside us in this garden you have created. Fill us with hope and curiosity so that we can see our past, not through a lens of shame, but our own learning, so that we can turn to face you now, Abba. Show us the next step in your time, not ours. We will patiently await your voice and your leading. In your name we pray, amen. We are Little Pieces Club Ministries. Thank you for spending time with us. Next time we will look deeply at the Good Shepherd.